Hi, friends. Welcome back to With Great People, the podcast for high-performance teams. I'm Richard Kasparowski. In this episode, I talk with Arlo Belshi, a legacy code consultant, a team-building leader, a pioneer of promiscuous pair programming, and CTO of Deep Roots. Listen to one of the best technical minds sharing with us his three foundational pillars of successful team building. To support this podcast, visit my website, kasparowski.com. Our special guest today is Arlo Belshi. Hi, Arlo. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. You got it. Uh, Arlo, will you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So I am one of those crazy people out there who loves legacy code. The uglier the code, the better, the more difficult it is to work with, the better. The more important it is to the business, the better. So I really enjoy jumping in with a team to the hardest bit of work that they have and immediately showing them more effective ways to work with that and to eventually master that gnarly legacy code. All right. And when you say legacy code, what do you mean? So here I was just using sort of the industry standard definition, code we hate but have to have. And when I'm being more nuanced, I actually distinguish between legacy and indebted. Legacy code is any code that is providing significant value to the business. It's stuff for which it is more valuable to have it not change than to have it change. So once a product has gotten big enough, you know, if I've got a $28 billion product, the incremental value of adding a new feature is $100,000. The incremental value of changing something that my customers are depending on is a risk of perhaps losing 10% of my market, and that's $2.8 billion. So features are worth far less than the code itself is. And that results in very different economics. Uh, Naturally, you should be more conservative in how you change that code. It's what's economically right. Yeah, and and the way you define it, I'm I'm afraid to touch that code now. Right. And then on top of that, there's indebted code. So indebted code is any code that developers legitimately fear to change because the probability is you're going to screw it up. Right. (laughs) Uh, It's code that's full of hazards. I also call it hazardous code. So it's unsafe to go there. And the fun part, of course, is big old projects. Usually code is both. It's legacy and indebted. And that makes it so that we really fear to change it, yet it does need to change. Yeah. All right. Awesome. And so this is the podcast about teams and great teams and the best teams of our lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look back at your your whole life, not even your, your whole career, when you look back at your whole life, what's the single best team you were ever part of? So the single best team is the one at Silver Platter. It's the team wherein we first transitioned to extreme programming. Uh It's fairly common among people who do XP and really do it well that their favorite team is the one that was first transitioned. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually, it's it's my typical example as well. I mean, there's, there's the example of me and my wife. And my other example is that group of people that I did XP with. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and and me and my wife would be the other one. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one with the best emotional fluidity and really deep attention to human being. And then my first XP team is the one with the best systems thinking and real alignment to how can we accomplish more effectively together. Yeah. And and that team, what else? What else about that team? 
what, what I usually get people to share is a single word to describe that team. And sometimes it's like we go through a, a simple guided meditation and we take ourselves back to it and re-experience what it felt like to be together and doing the activity together. Is there a single word you could use for that first XP team or the, the sensation of, of working together, being together? Yeah, I, I absolutely know the sensation. I'm looking for one word that describes, that hits that sensation. It's fundamentally like really deep variety. It's the diversity and inclusiveness are the highly overused buzzwords right now. And I don't mm -hmm. mean them in the current buzzword sense. Yeah. But it's, it's that deep diversity where each person is internally diverse. They have many different opinions. They are in contrast with each other. Each person has their dark sides and their shadows as well as the bright, happy bits. And the dark sides and shadows are fully in play and fully engaged. You know, we had one guy who provided a lot of different pieces of value, but the most valuable thing that he provided was he was the one who would get pissed off. <laughs> and so things that other people are starting to cope with and just, you know, whatever, he yeah. stands up and throws an eraser at the whiteboard <laughs> and said, God damn it, this thing is intolerable. And then all of us who are coping go, yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. We get, we get acculturated. It takes like, I had breakfast with a, a friend this morning who's a coach and he was like, he sees people join his company where he's coaching and they're full of great ideas. And 90 days later, nothing's changed and they've lost their spark. They, they get acculturated. They're not throwing the eraser at the whiteboard anymore, yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fairly common. And we all get acculturated. We also all learn to cope. Many of us start looking around for social cues of what is it that you want me to do in this team? Mm -hmm. And we all need that, but we also need to balance it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's the levels of ego development. At the earlier stages, we're looking for expertise we're, or we're looking for achievement or, or accomplishment where we look to our peers, we look to our objectives, we look to what is the right or most effective way. And those are where the seat of our ego resides. And as long as we're there, there are certain forces which we are simply subject to. We cannot right. think about them, we cannot manipulate them, we cannot work with them. And it's, it's only with later levels of development that you can actually take the perspective and see how even those are just part of the little world around and we can manipulate it. Yeah. What else about this team? This sounds like it was an incredible, I don't know, for me, I look back on, on that, my, my analogous team, my homologous team, and it was like, it was a life-changing experience. What was this like for you? What else about this team? Yeah. So it, it was a life-changing experience. We had everybody, we had the usual combination early on of high pressure. The company was going to die. That's why we were willing to try something called extreme programming. <laughs> at the um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was the difference between all the people who started XP before like 2003 or so and all the yeah. people who started Agile afterwards. Yeah. And so, so yeah, we were in that state. That meant that we weren't willing to fail for long, so we had mm -hmm. to really rush to embrace it. This was back, you know, back in those days when sprints were typically a month long and, and so on. Pair sessions were many days. That's why we did promiscuous pairing. We rotated yeah. pairs every 60 minutes, every oh, wow. 90 minutes as we grew. Um, we did one-week sprints. We had a retrospective that was run by an experimental physicist that we had on the team. And so it was, 
quasi experiments like how do, <laughs> how would we, what really matters here and how would we measure that and what could we try and when things sort of feel like they work but the numbers show they aren't uh, yeah. like, okay throw it overboard let's try something else <laughs> we don't have time to keep up with just it feels right it isn't yeah. working <laughs> yeah um and yet also deep valuing of of people's internal experience like a lot of the the things that we were looking were those qualitatives and and how is it feeling yeah. but it, it needed to be both so this was a team that was it was very practical grounded and very focused on how do we be awesome how do we be yeah. effective and deeply understanding that that is a team activity yeah so many analogs to the first two teams that i worked with in an extreme programming style on on one of them it was well, both of them actually we call them underfunded startups and it was yep. get stuff done or die uh on one of them we had a physicist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't get it at the time the knowledge that he had the value that he brought with his background in in real science and, and conducting experiments yeah yeah i mean our team had an experimental physicist it had a pure mathematician it had a film producer it had a theater major. It had a guy who had done way too many drugs in the 70s and had no short-term memory. <laughs> and it had me, you know, math, physics, religious studies sort of general. <laughs> uh, we had no software engineers, but that wasn't necessary. Software engineering, it remains a skill without actually a great depth of education. And so you can fill that part in. Yeah. All right. There's so a great deal of learning, but not a great depth of education. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, what, what else about this team? Uh, what What other subjective sensations uh, went to, go into how you know this was the best team of your life? Or, or any, anything, anything subjective or objective? Do you have measurements? Do you have other, other feelings? Or Yeah, bunches on both sides. So feelings, I mean, it just... It felt amazing. We would always try new things and the tremendous openness to explore and to try new ideas and you know, read something in a book, bring it in, try it out. Mm -hmm. oh, well, that didn't work. Okay, throw it overboard. Mm -hmm. uh, or it did build on it. Uh, we did the launch meetings and we'd start that with an emotional check-in and we'd do that three times a day. It was wow. separating the period for, of not working from we're working together as a team. Yeah. We were always... Pairing, we were always in one room, sitting, you know, eight of us around one table in, in pairs, and so there was like that transition. We got, you know, stand up was about uh, two to three minutes long, most of which was checking into the emotions of the people, uh -huh. and then we're just like, okay, here are the things. Sit at a computer, each computer owns a task. Go, right? So that was very effective for keeping in that constant fluidity, the human dynamic, objectively. After that team, you know, the company eventually disbanded and, and the team you know, died as a result. The next job that everybody had, I think without exception, pretty close to without exception, certainly, was their next, their career and dream job. Yeah. So most people on that team went from school to one team to end of career. <laughs> and then they just spent the rest of their career doing whatever they wanted to. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> their next job was their end of career job. Like what? Yeah, like, like becoming the guy who really loved baseball and was a pure mathematician became <laughs> the computer guy who was doing the statistician for his favorite baseball team. All right. A um, couple of people decided they wanted to go into management. So they immediately went into uh, mid upper level management and go to directors and some retired after that next job and some wow. going. 
you know, I went on to uh, the international speaking. It was my first three, four years. Everything that I brought out was stuff that had invented on that team yeah. um, and was talking a lot about experiences on that team. And then the rest of my career has been sort of follow on to the speaking and the, the coaching yeah. and that sort of stuff. Okay, cool. You shared with us one example of a, a concrete practice that this team had. And actually, you, okay, you alluded to many. You just said <laughs> XP, right? That's a, that's a lot of concrete practices. And, and you added on this, this practice of an emotional check-in, which I don't know, what, what year was this? Uh, 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah, okay. So I think that's really advanced for bringing in an idea of emotional check-in to a team, to, to a technical team. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that that was happening back in 2001. Uh, what, what, what are some other concrete practices that this team had? Uh, well, promiscuous pairing, we invented yeah. it. <laughs> you invented it? Yeah, yeah. We read the book and it said pair. And so we said, well, pair all the time. Because yeah. it sort of alluded that's the good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know at the time because I didn't know any of the rest of the community. But I later learned from talking to Ward once I'd moved to Portland where he lives that they meant pair all the time in these pairs that would rotate every few days or every sprint or something like that. Yeah. Um, we paired and then we'd rotate and we noticed that when we rotated more quickly, we would learn more quickly. And we found that at the bottom end of time, like when it was really short, everyone was always feeling like they don't quite get it. And yeah. yet we looked at the board and those weeks we would get way more done. And so we started <laughs> experimenting again, our, our physicist, we started experimenting with pair length and we found that with a three to six person team, 60 minutes was the right thing. Once we got to 11, 90 minutes was the right thing. And the curve was, oh, we had nearly double productivity at that time level to anything greater than about double that. Once, once it wow. came down to double that time period, it was flat then on. It didn't really matter how long you swapped. It took between swaps. You had evidence. This we is so cool. Evidence. Yeah. And then we finally found a theory. Like it took us a year to find a theory, but we had evidence. All right, what's the theory? The theory is beginner's mind. The theory is that what was happening, because we also experimented with other things, like who owns a task? Is it owned by a, the most qualified or least qualified person? Is it Do people rotate in like this task stays with Bob and then he switches partners? And we found the most effective thing was that effectively a computer owns a task. And that you would, put, owns a task. you would put the two least qualified people on it at first. And then uh -huh. you'd rotate one of them out for the next least qualified person. And then you'd rotate out whoever was, <laughs> had been there longest. So always, whoever might know anything about this task, keep them away from it. And when you did that, and you did that systematically, continuously, a couple of things happened. One, the least qualified grows very, very quickly. So the result was that everyone was damn qualified at everything we did. Yeah. Right? That meant that differences, again, this highly diverse team, differences in ways of being and ways of thinking would shine through because everybody's a master of the C++ programming skills because learn those fairly quickly when you're doing yeah. this disqualified and whatever else is involved. So then the person who's a visual thinker is able to bring that to bear or the person yeah. who's insanely detail-oriented brings that to bear or yeah. whatever are the real personality traits because everyone has equal access to bring that in. So that was one big thing that really provided a huge lift. Another was, I mentioned beginner's mind. You know, what, what Zen Buddhists found long ago and has since been reproduced many times is that there are multiple different brain states you could be in. Flow is one of those and yep. disconnected and whatever. If you look at those neurologically, flow is a state of extreme practice 
where you are repeating over and over what you already know. And yeah. it actually, blood flow goes down in the prefrontal cortex, blood flow goes down in the judgment centers, and it goes up in the cerebellum. It's repetitive, yeah. which is wonderful for athletes. It's wonderful for musicians. You want to do the same thing over and over. How often do you want to invent the same thing over and over? Yeah, so it's not so good for those of us inventing a new thing every day, which is what we're doing when we're writing code. Exactly. So it's basically the shittiest possible state of mind, least productive <laughs> possible state of mind for a programmer. Yeah. That is what we seek. And we seek it because the only other state of mind that we know is distracted, which is even yeah. worse. <laughs> yeah, right? sure. Bouncing between a whole bunch of things, can't think of anything. And so you can't use even your short-term memory. You know, all the memory registers are flushing. It's really bad for this. So we yeah. see flow as, as the be-all and end-all. What we found here was it was a different mind state. It's beginner's mind. Beginner's yeah. mind is the one that the brain goes into when you have enough awareness of whatever you're doing that you feel you should understand it. Like, I really should get this, <laughs> but not enough that you actually do, right? And this is why board gamers do so well on their first win of a game and then their uh -huh. first time playing and then they suck thereafter. In beginner's mind state. <laughs> we call it beginner's luck. Yeah, we do. We call it luck. And yet you can measure it. It's consistent. It happens yeah. under laboratory conditions. It's not uh -huh. luck. Um, <laughs> and you can hook someone's brains up to fMRI and you can actually observe. What happens is it turns on the prefrontal cortex, acetylcholine dumps throughout the brain, which amplifies learning. It is the brain's way to say, I got this, I got this, I need to learn it. So it's highly metabolically intensive. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> but you learn really, really quickly and you put together things you otherwise wouldn't. It's optimal huh? for invention and for skill growth. So the brain naturally goes into it if you're in that state, that situation, that context of, I feel I should get it, but I don't quite. So what we were doing by rotating every hour and rotating off the person who was more experienced, we called it Sith-based rotation. Call it what? Sith-based. And every, Sith there is always one master and one apprentice, and soon the yeah. apprentice kills the master and becomes the new master, <laughs> and then stupidly acquires an apprentice. I'm not sure why they do that. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, like, they can't see the system. They, can't, anyway. they, can't, they don't see the pattern, yeah. <laughs> they don't see the pattern. Um, but we did. And so we would do that. The result is that you spend an hour brand new on this task, and you're naturally going to be in that state because... It's sort of familiar. I was in this code two days ago. I really should get it, but I don't get it. It's changed so much, but okay, right? And that around an hour in, 90 minutes, and if you have more people because you've been further away from the task, is the point where you start to feel, oh, I get it. Now I can be productive. Yeah. So it's time to fire you. So this <laughs> is we actually have you kill your master. Your master goes away and you become the master. And now your job is you think you get it. Well, 60 minutes from now, your apprentice is going to kill you so you have to bring that guy up to speed, but not just up speed. Any idea you have that you want to get in the code now that you think you know it, you have to push through that guy's mind. Yeah. And so it had some of the results that the strong style pairing that Llewellyn does uh, have as well. And so the result is that you're thrown right back into that beginner's mind because you're now not beginner's mind on the task. You're beginner's mind on one level up. How do uh -huh. I help people get this task? How do I make this more effective? And you're just alternating throughout the day, back and forth between beginner's mind on those two things. You get exhausted when you work a six-hour day with some breaks in between and you call it done. Yep. And in that six hours, we outproduce weeks worth of work. Yeah. So you collected a bunch of data. Did this team figure out that it was beginner's mind as the theory? And how long did it take to figure out that the beginner's mind was the, the explanation for, for everything? 
Um, I don't remember precisely. It was that team. It was six months to a year, somewhere in that time frame before we ran across that concept and went, oh, that matches because yeah. then we could match the feel of the thing. We could, it's like, yeah, we're exhausted. It's this sort of exhausted. It's yeah, we don't quite get it. And then when we do is about the time that we're supposed to swap. Um, <laughs> and, and once we had that theory, then as we hired new people, we could explain to them the theory and just show the data and say, so that's yeah. why we want you to do this crazy thing that feels terrible. So I know you had data, but what about 60 minutes versus 90 minutes, depending on the number of people on the team? Yeah. Our belief as to the reason was that when there were more people on the team, it had been longer since you had been paired with this person or on this part of the code. And okay. so it took a little bit longer before you'd lose the beginner's mind edge. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah it was our guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so this was a team that innovated all over the place. We paired differently. We planned differently. Our retrospectives were different. I haven't seen anyone who did retrospectives like we did. Our standups were different. Everything. Okay. So, so what about planning and retrospectives? So planning, this was back again, 2001 or so. We did a rolling wave multi-level planning with good feed forward there. At this point, it's fairly common among teams, yeah. uh, at least among those who are vertically organized and are in control of their long-range planning. But, but at that point, it was a little more unusual. So yeah, our planning was was there. It was, of course, one week sprints, and which is still unusual today. People still say oh, we can't we can't even get stuff done in three weeks. We can't do a two week sprint. Yeah. Oh, and then there was one other thing, which was we measured velocity differently, and this was actually important. It resulted in really low variation. We did other things to get rid of the technical variation, but we were still in an environment in which most weeks there are a large number of interrupts of things that could not be foreseen. Uh, mm -hmm. Some technical, lots of business, it's a startup. There's this stuff going on. So we looked at velocity and everybody seemed to do it by at the end of the week, we count what got done and then we assume that we'll do that next week. There's a fundamental problem of knowability because yeah. during the week you gain information. So what you're doing is you're measuring at the end when you have maximum information and assuming that you have that much information at planning in your next week right. and you never do. And consistently, the part that you don't know, the, the unknowns that show up, all add more work. So if you measure velocity at the end oh. and assume you'll do that next week, you are 100% guaranteeing that you will overplan and then not be able to meet it. So what we did was simply tracked each card, and we had multiple categories. There was planned work that got done, mm -hmm. unplanned work that's still valuable, but that got done. And then there were emergencies, red card sorts of things which is unplanned work as well. But we differentiate between those two because what we wanted was we would then be able to predict we did this much planned work. Next week, we'll do that much planned work. We assume the other two categories will show up. They're just invisible right now, right? right? So we'd plan that much planned work. Yeah. It would show up. And yeah. now we have exactly the right amount of space for things to show up. And yeah. then things would show up into one of the two camps, red cards or unplanned. Unplanned were things that like, this is a really good idea. We want to keep this open. This is the stuff that we want to encourage to keep happening. Yep. Red cards are the opposite. It's unplanned work that we would like to discourage. We like to systematically eliminate, like yep. books, right? Yep. And so then when we get to the end of the sprint, we can now look at, okay, from our velocity number, we know this is how much we should plan. Also, right now, we can see that the unplanned work is coming in two-thirds is stuff that we don't want and one-third is stuff that's good stuff. Okay, 
So as we go towards retrospective, what are some systematic solutions we could do to reduce the sources of the bad unplanned work? Yeah. Or right now, actually, we've got a fair amount of good unplanned work coming in and we're being responsive to that. What are some things that we could do to enhance systematically the amount of good unplanned work that's coming in on our ability to respond to change? So we could do either of those looking at exactly what that work was this week and causing it. And you said the word systematic twice there, and I, I, you're talking about retros, and I, and I love that. A lot of people, there are so many teams that are just starting out at this stuff. They don't have, we'll say, high maturity at retrospectives yet. What you said twice was the word systematic, finding systematic responses or systematic ways to amplify the things that you're noticing, systematic responses to, to minimize the things you don't like. Systematic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because you're never going to hit that card again. Yeah. You are going to hit the things that caused that card. Yeah. And, and since that team, we've, I've refined that all sorts of things. And it's the safeguarding stuff that I currently teach at Cell. Um, it's all about hazard thinking and, and so on. But that, that also showed up even back then. That the way we did retrospectives was a bit different. It ties in both to the emotional fluidity and to the uh, systems thinking. So during the week, we had a box, just a shoebox sort of a thing that's sitting in the middle of the table. And anytime anyone had an emotional response to anything, like emotions are going up, we recognized and agreed, and we'd all talked about this, emotions are the way the brain signals something important happened. And it gives you a little bit like by which emotion a little bit of a clue as to why it's important. So if emotions aren't coming up, then that means nothing important is going on. <laughs> and that's just fine. I mean, a lot of time we just need to code and we're just coding through some code and we get an idea and then we put it in the code and whatever else. That's great. It produces good work. It also means we don't need to retrospect on that shit. Right. right? No matter how valuable that work turns out to be, no matter how much of the week it was, it was pleasant, it was whatever, great. Yeah, it just happens. It just happens. No need for a systematic change there. Right. If, however, I'm coding along and I feel overjoyed, I feel glad, like really glad. Well, that tells me that both something positive happened and it was surprising. I did not expect that positive thing. Yeah. If I feel glad, I need to write that down and put it in the box. So yeah. that was our emotions box. And you'd write down, I felt this emotion when this happened. And you put it in uh -huh. the box. Um, and then the agreement was that would mean then that you know, having put that in, we'd work through whatever emotions were there in the present. And then we'd come back at the retrospective and talk to them. And every emotion goes in the box. Glad's yeah. there, angry's there, mad, sad, glad, afraid, and then nuances, frustrated. and Because sure. so right? everyone had something important to tell us. Angry means that something which is valuable to you, some critical resource is under threat. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's that you're feeling disrespected Maybe it's that you're feeling your time is being wasted by something. Maybe it's that you're feeling like good ideas aren't getting out. All of these are something we should talk about, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Anger should never be suppressed. It should never explode all over either. It's, it's that middle way, that way of flow with the anger, see what it has to teach you, write it down, bring it up, talk about it, and yeah. make the change to protect the thing that anger is saying needs to be protected. Um, and likewise for sadness and for fear and for everything else. So we would take these emotions, we put them in the box throughout the week. And then that is the data gathering portion of our retrospective. When we get to the retrospective, we just start by pulling those out and we sort through them. And we, the first sort is just the longs and the shorts. It's short if everyone's basically agreed 
there's not really any systematic change that needs to happen. There might be a, a, a little quick, let's just do this one thing differently. Or the main thing is it just needs to be heard. And so it's just going to be fairly quick and that short and long as anything else. So we just go through, separate them. Then we did all the shorts in no order. And then we'd prioritize the longs and we'd do one of those. And we'd do one of those in a systematic way. And we did that every single week. And so that meant that the little short things that otherwise add up, they just get done at the end of every week. We're through them all quickly. Every time that someone had an emotion, A, it's felt and they know they're recognized around the team and, the, and it has those human effects. And B, the important things got in the box and we worked with them. All the other stuff, even, you know, we don't have any recency bias or anything like that. Unimportant stuff on the last two days. Well, you didn't feel emotional enough to put it in the box. So it doesn't count. Throw it away. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? And and that important thing from Monday still shows up. So So we did that. And then because we were doing one systematic approach every time, we could then, that's where we did our experiment. We could really take a systematic approach, the root cause it, and then we'd start figuring out what are the multiple causes and contributing yep. factors? What are multiple possible solutions for each of those? How could we run several of these experiments at once? How would we measure which ones are, are resulting in a change to the underlying thing? Run those over the course of the week or sometimes multiple weeks and then incorporate those into our system of work. Awesome. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're doing it every week. So you had high frequency, you had a high frequency improvement cycle. Yeah. Very high frequency and very high quality as well. Yeah. Good signal. And you, you mentioned, and you avoided recency bias. The stuff that happened yesterday is the stuff we remember the most, but <laughs> you remembered everything every day. Right. At least the important things that triggered some, some emotional response. Yeah. You had a filter that was applied continuously. Yeah. Okay. So I know that your job is to teach people all the things that they might want to do to have a more awesome software development experience. What are some fundamental things? What are some foundations? If, if you could tell people one or two or three things right now, what would those things be to have the best team of their life? Number one, disciplined refactoring. Number two, emotional awareness. Number three, hazard thinking. That's it. All right. Okay. Hold on. We've talked about number two enough. Number yes. one was disciplined refactoring. Number three was hazard thinking. Can you explain this just a little bit more? Yes. So disciplined refactoring, most important thing. That is how do I make a known change in code structure that I can guarantee is bug for bug compatible? I want to guarantee that the behavior after this thing does not accidentally fix a bug that I don't know exists. If you're only thinking about how do I not introduce a bug that I know to look for, that's a much lower safety bar. And there are all sorts of ways to do it and supported by unit tests and unit testing and whatever can mostly hit that bar. Yep. Um, it feels, it gives you a false sense of security though, because it feels like, oh, I'm testing so I won't have bugs. No, you'll only not have any bug that you can imagine. You'll have all the bugs you can't imagine. <laughs> And what's even worse, if we go back to that legacy identification, you know, if I'm on a product of any real size, any real importance in the world yet, then the most important thing is the value that the product already has. And that's locked yeah. into the behaviors as experienced by the customer, which I guarantee are different than the behaviors as experienced by anyone inside the company, which means that you have many bugs that are providing value to your customers <laughs> that you don't know about. <laughs> Unintended value. Unintended value. <laughs> and if you were to accidentally fix one of those bugs, it would be really, really problematic. Hilarious. We don't have bugs. We have unintended value. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. I, I, mean, I was working on a team much, much later um, at Microsoft, wherein uh, I found something screwy in a, in a spec 
the OData team, so the protocol for data exchange or whatever, something's great. So I just made it right and, yeah. like, and, and simplified it. And it was much easier, much more beautiful. Everyone <laughs> could do it. And then I got that call a couple of weeks later from yep. someone else who worked, had been working in the database for years. And he said, uh, if you change this part of the spec, SQL Server will not be able to support Microsoft's protocol for data exchange. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? It's like, that is there to ensure that we keep having this bug that uh -huh. currently is driving about $2 billion of business because there are a couple of large old companies whose systems depend on that bug and they've lost source control. They, they have no way <laughs> to have the system work unless we are binary compatible with yeah. that bug. Right? Yeah. It's more valuable than any feature you could add. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that, that deep knowledge and experience of that makes you think when you're refactoring, you've got to approach it differently yeah. because you cannot accidentally fix a bug you don't know exists. <laughs> you need to prove that. There's no test could ever help with that. <laughs> multiple, multiple levels of naiveness. <laughs> fix yeah. a bug that you don't know exists. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And no one in the company even knows it exists. Right. But, and yet people are counting on that behavior. They really are. And so, yeah, when you finally really eyes open to that and to understanding that your job is that level of precision and quality, mm -hmm. then you have to approach it differently. And yeah. refactoring can't be, well, it certainly can't be slipshod, just edit some code. And even just using Fowler's recipes that are supported by tests, that's too risky for a lot of code. That's great if you've got a new product that doesn't have a lot of customers. It's great mm -hmm. if your product has is, is only been out in the marketplace for a couple of years because you don't have so much accrued value. Right. You can't use that on something that's a 15-year-old product. You need a higher level of safety. And that's the disciplined refactoring, which is okay. focused on uh, using static analysis and language level levels of proof so that you can guarantee, yes, according to the rules of this programming language, assuming there is no bug in the compiler, these two are identical. And if I've gotten it down to the only time I could accidentally screw up a customer is if there's a compiler bug, okay, it'll happen, but really rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that was number one. Number three number <laughs> was three. hazard thinking. Hazard thinking, yeah. So this is systems thinking. It's also systems thinking with a great degree of community thinking around it. Okay. So it starts with understanding bugs and where do bugs come from? <clears throat> so every bug is carefully custom handcrafted by some well-meaning, highly trained, very intelligent, conscientious, careful software developer. All right. That, that's a beautiful way to say it. <laughs> really, really. Yeah. We're, 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 we're all good intentioned. Yeah. We're all good intentioned. We're all very good at our jobs. Yeah. We're all bright, way above average on average. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually true. Well, yeah, actually. Yeah. We are selected from the top half of the bell yeah. curve. And, and so on average, we are above average. <laughs> um, and yet, we still write a bug and a half a day on average. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, and depending on how you count, it could be as money as three, four a day is the one. That, and then those are just the ones that slip past your initial check to get past your fingers or one yep. and a half a day on average, um, which is way too goddamn many. So the question is, where do they come from? And the way I think of it is, if we've got all these conscious developers, what's really going on is they're in extremely hazardous conditions in which they are presented with the opportunity a thousand times a day to custom handcraft a terrible, terrible bug. 
And they're so good that they're able to identify 998 and a half of those uh, before it happens and not do that. Yeah. But they're not good enough to get 100% because no one's that good. Yeah. Right. They've got two and a half nines. Let's go. <laughs> and we have data to support that we humans just aren't that good. Right. Right. Um, and honestly, if you're in a system in which you've got one thing which is operating at 99.95% effectiveness, yeah. and another thing which is operating at a thousand fuck ups a day, <laughs> where should I optimize this system? <laughs> Hmm. Let's think about that for a moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's hazard thinking. Okay. If you ever find a bug and you root cause and you find this person made a mistake and respond with, let's be more careful. Yeah. You're screwing it up. What you want to be thinking about is how could we have been less careful and not have it be a problem? Mm. How could we, let's look for the hazards. Let's look for the things that made it possible, uh-huh. made it likely that presented the opportunity to the developer to fuck it up. Um, and then let's do something about those. Mm-hmm. And safeguarding the thing that I do combines that with an, an iterative approach so that on each bug, you're doing a little bit of pay down for each of those hazards. Okay. And over time, your bug stream becomes data. Not that you have to go back and analyze, but by responding, sampling it in real time, you effectively are putting your investments to pay down in real time, whichever hazards contribute the most to the actual defects that you're seeing. Awesome. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? No, no. You do all three of those things and you're (laughs) awesome. (laughs) All right. And if they want to do all three of those things and they want to know how, how could they contact you? Okay. So uh, my company, Deep Roots, does this. Go to digdeeproots.com or Mm -hmm. email me, Arlo, at digdeeproots uh, or see us on Twitter. And we do a few things at the single team scale, but we actually do most of our stuff at the much larger enterprise scale. The company consists of two of us. I am, well, me, and I know all the technical what needs to happen and how do we get effectiveness. And my business partner is an instructional designer. She knows the how, like how do you get 2000 people who are a systematic culture this way to simultaneously shift to a different culture? without needing to sit down a mentor next to every single one and pair for three months. Right. Because <laughs> the pairing will work, it's just too expensive. Yeah. And so we have built solutions for that. We know precisely what changes need to happen, that comes from me, and we know precisely how to make those effectively happen without a lot of resistance, without a lot of cost. All right. All right, awesome. Arlo, thanks so much for joining us today. This, uh, I, I, was telling, uh, I was telling somebody this morning, there are two people in the world who I think are the best technical minds. There's Llewellyn and there's Arlo, and I get to talk to Arlo this afternoon. <laughs> Isn't that cool? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks, thanks for joining me. This was awesome fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Hi, friends. Thanks again for listening. And remember, to support this podcast, visit my website, kasparowski.com. <laughs>